Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As many of you know, we recently had the privilege of hosting a major conference, the Return of Mere Anglicanism, that this year was focused on the theme of telling a more beautiful story, lessons from C.S. Lewis on reaching a fractured world. And it was a glorious time gathering with 900 people and hearing about ways that we can tell a more beautiful story to a world that is longing for it. And as I reflected on this theme and remembered some of the talks that were given, one of the things that came up several times is that as you remember from high school or middle school English, every story has a narrator. But there are different voices of narrators. There's the first person narrator who is a character in the story who has limited information and is telling the story just from what he or she may know about what's going on. Another way that a story can be told is with an omniscient narrator, one who knows everything. Not usually a character in the story, but they speak as if they are writing the story. And as we look at our culture today, one of the issues that we find is that we live in a culture full of first-person narrators, like characters in a story, but not sure which story they're in wandering about, colliding, trying to figure out what book they're supposed to be into and what framework they're supposed to be living in. They are lost. And one of the things that came up over and over again in the conference is that Jesus is the master storyteller. As you look through scripture, you see Jesus telling stories over and over again whether it's in the parables or in the ways that he's explaining concepts or in the imagery that he's using. And one of the beautiful things about that is that Jesus is like the omniscient narrator in a story, the one who knows everything, who knows about each character, and who is talking about his kingdom of beauty and truth and goodness and joy in which we all have a role to play that will give us meaning and purpose and lead us into his kingdom. And this morning, as we look at the gospel text, we will learn about what some of that story looks like. Later in the service, in the anthem, we will hear a beautiful story of how we are designed and purposed to love and praise God and enjoy him forever as we sing of his righteousness and mercy. But what about those first-person narrators who are wandering around, lost in our culture, who don't know anything about Jesus or his kingdom, or who have been told lies about Jesus or misunderstood it because of the pain they've experienced, or those who believe in a false king who has usurped the role of the true king? Jesus calls us, those who are Christians, those who know him, to tell the most beautiful story to tell his story of the good news. And the gospel today reminds us that we are his storytellers, and without us, the story will not be told. No matter how great a story is, if it sits in a closed book, gathering dust on a shelf, rather than being told to people, that story can make no difference. This morning, we have this famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount, 
The context here today is Matthew 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' greatest teaching. Even Gandhi said it was the most sublime teaching in the history of the world. And the first part is the Beatitudes, and then shortly after that comes this passage today about salt and light. And there's much else in this passage, but we're just going to focus in on these two things because there's so much that we can learn that I think is needful for us in this moment in which we find ourselves. So first of all, salt. Salt is one of those things that is ubiquitous throughout culture and history. Uh, most of us have salt at home in our cabinet, salt in our, on our table, and in the ancient world, salt was plentifully available, although it was more costly than it is today. And salt in the ancient world had even more functions than it does today. In the ancient world, it was a store of value, but the reason it was a store of value was that it was the only thing in an age without refrigeration that could stop meat from putrefying and rotting. And so it was very valuable for that reason. But even in the ancient world, salt was also known as something that could give flavor. That interestingly, when you put the right amount of salt, you don't taste the salt, but it draws out the flavor of what you're putting it on. But the ancients were also aware, as we know today, that if you pour too much salt on something, it will kill it. It will poison it if you want to get rid of weeds without using Roundup salt can do it for you. So the question is, what kind of salt are we called to be? And what Jesus is telling us is that we are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth all the time, not just when we feel like it, not just when we're in church, not when we're engaged in some spiritual activity or feeling good about the world. We are it. John Stott puts it this way, each affirmation in these verses begins in the Greek sentence with the emphatic pronoun you, as much as to say you and only you are the salt and the world's light. And therefore, the condition follows with inexorable logic. You simply must not fail the world that you are called to serve. The notion is not that the world is tasteless and Christians can make it less insipid. The thought of making the world palatable to God is quite impossible, but that it is putrefying. It cannot stop itself from going bad. Only salt introduced from outside can do this. The church, on the other hand, is set in the world with a double role as salt to, to arrest or to at least hinder the process of social decay and as light to dispel the rampant darkness. We are the salt, whether we're at home or at school, whether we're on the playing field, whether we're on social media, whether we're playing video games, whether we're in politics, no matter where we are, we are the salt. And the question is, what kind of salt are we? Jesus tells us that salt can either be really good or if it loses its flavor, it is worth nothing and only deserves to be trampled underfoot. We are called by Jesus to be this salt, the only salt that there is in this world, and it is up to us to choose whether we are good or useless. How often do we choose to just keep our salt to ourselves, flavoring the dish of our life with enough to make us feel good about things, but not willing to take the risk 
to reach out to someone who might need the word of the gospel, to take the risk to speak a word of encouragement, to reach out and tell the story of Jesus, imperfectly though it might be, but to tell the story that we have experienced in our own lives, that it might give life to someone else. Or on the other extreme, do we see other people with whom we disagree as those on whom we need to dump a lot of salt to try to kill them off? That is not what Jesus calls us to do. What he calls us to do is to speak the word of life-giving grace. And I would encourage you to go and look in the Gospels and look at Jesus' words and look at the way that Jesus speaks to people. He is the perfect example of what it means to be salt, to speak a word of truth but in a way that is winsome and gracious that does not hide the truth of God's word but invites people to come and see about a kingdom that is more beautiful and true than anything the world can offer. But in case we don't get the salt image, Jesus gives us another image, the image of light, which he expresses in two ways. He tells us that we are the light of the world with that same emphatic you. You and only you are the light of the world. There is no one else. If you fail to be the light, if you fail to be the salt, there will not be any. We will be in a world that is rotting and that is in darkness. Jesus tells us that we are a city on the hill. And the interesting thing is he does not say that we are light when we are feeling good and the sky is blue and it's not rainy and wet and nasty like it is today. When we're feeling spiritual, when people have been nice to us, when we just got a raise and everything's going well. No, he tells us we are the light all the time. And the question is whether we are shining a pure and beautiful light or whether we are living in darkness and hiding that light. He tells us that if we do not show the light that he is, that he has given us, if he does not shine through us, the world will be in darkness. And we see so much darkness around us today in the world. And imagine what might happen if the people of God rose up if the church were to arise, as we're going to sing later in this service, and put our armor on and shine the light of Christ. He gives us this example, too, of the city on a hill. And if you've ever traveled, particularly in Italy or somewhere like that, where there are a lot of medieval towns on hills, one of the remarkable things that happens every day is that all those hills that are green and verdant, as the sun begins to fall, you see this glow on the top of them. And it's from the lights in those villages. And they cannot be hidden. And they're bright enough that you can use them to figure out where you are. And so Jesus calls us a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. It reminds me of a VBS skit we did a few years ago where we took some four and five-year-olds and put them up on the platform in the parish hall and drew a little circle around them and we gave each one of them a sign. One said C, one said I, one said T, and one said Y. And we said, you are the city on a hill. We want you to try to hide, but you can't go out of the circle. So they all were perplexed about this. They sat down, tried to hold the sign upside down over their head or laid on top of each other, looking like a bunch of Legos that had been smashed by someone. But the fact of the matter is they weren't hidden. We could still see them, but what we could see was that they were in a mess. My friends, how often, as City on a Hill, do we look like 
those children on the platform, rather than standing up boldly with our C, our I, our T, and our Y, inviting people to come and see the light of Christ. T.S. Eliot, in his poem, Courses from the Rock, talks about what happens when we fail to live out our identity as the city on the hill. He says this, and the wind shall say, here were decent, godless people, their only monument, the asphalt road and a thousand lost golf balls. He then contrasts that with the right understanding of our destiny, saying, what have we to do but to stand with empty hands and palms raised upward, inviting Christ to come and fill us in an age which progresses and advances, but backwards. Eliot understands that we don't need to be a pointless historic monument, but that instead we need to be a city with its hands lifted up toward God, waiting to be filled so that we might be a light to people who live in darkness. Jesus then sums all this up with command, saying, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father as they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And my friends, this is the testimony of what the church should be about. But if people are not giving glory to God the Father, perhaps because it is not, they're not seeing our good works, like that little song, This Little Light of Mine, we are hiding our light under the bushel. We're hiding it under the basket. And what people perceive about the people of God is judgment and lack of love and lack of compassion rather than the beauty, truth, goodness, and mercy of the kingdom of God. The interesting thing, though, is that Jesus makes it very clear that this ability to do good works is not because we are good. It is only the goodness of Christ shining through us. Our good works are only the fruit of our relationship with him. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. Those people hope by being good to please God if there is one, or if they think there's not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good that he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love him because he is good, but that God will make him good because he loves him. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. I love what Psalm 18 says, you Lord, keep my light burning. My God turns my darkness into light. So I think we can agree that our world desperately needs salt and light. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way as he summarized this passage on salt and light. For effectiveness, the Christian must retain his Christ-likeness as salt must retain its saltiness. If Christians become assimilated as non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct from society, not identical to it. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. 
The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. And how often has the church gotten mired in the sands and the quicksands of trying to be relevant and dumbed down and taken away from the beautiful story that the gospel is. If we hold fast to the word of God and the beauty of the story that has been given to us, people will be drawn to us like a magnet. So the question is, how can we live more into this beautiful story? The first thing is to remember how important it is to tell the story, to not leave that beautiful story in a dusty book on the shelf, but to tell it. And part of what that means as we think about the narrator we were talking about earlier is to live into Jesus' story where he's the main character and not you. We live in a culture beset with narcissism where we think we are the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. But if we shift our framework and begin to understand that Jesus is the word of God that holds together all reality and we seek to live in that story, it will transform our life. That means that we will be in prayer all throughout the day, that we will be in worship giving glory to God and thanking him. We will be obsessed with God's word. As Jeremiah says, we will eat God's word. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, O God of hosts. It is a beautiful story to be called by the Lord's name. The other thing that is so important as we live in Jesus' story is to not be conformed to the world. As Lloyd-Jones said, not to get all mixed up so that we're no different. And one of the things that characterizes our world today is negativity and complaining. If you have complained in the past 24 hours, please raise your hand. All right, the rest of you are lying. But the problem in a culture that is desperate for joy because it's mired in despair and anxiety and complaining is that if the church is full of complaining and grumbling and bad humors, how will anyone ever be attracted to that? We should be characterized by joy. That doesn't mean we need to be Pollyannas, but as John Dixon said in his sermon on the Friday service at Mere Anglicanism, we have won. Christ has won the war. And that puts us in a position to be able to shine the light, to have joy, to have mercy, no matter our circumstances. The second thing is that we must learn to see others as Jesus sees them, with eyes of compassion, who see in each person the image of God, but sadly marred by sin, reaching out, wanting to listen with empathy to each person's story, to hear them, and then to tell them of the more beautiful story that they may not even know about, or one that they've been told is not a beautiful story, and they've misunderstood it. We must learn and pray that God would give us his eyes to see others. And then thirdly, we must have the courage to tell our story. You do not need a degree in theology or a degree from an evangelism seminar to tell the story of what Christ has done for you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a good start. But there's so much about the way we experience Christ if we've come to him that we can share with others. And when we take that moment 
and pray that God would put people in our path and we'd be honest about sharing who we are with them, it is remarkable what might happen. God takes the little risk that we make and does something remarkable with it. Those of you that heard the men's lunch on Wednesday heard how Howard Dayton, as a young man working in finance and real estate development, had one goal in life, to make as much money as he could, as quickly as he could, and he didn't care if it was ethical or not. And in the midst of that, one of his co-workers challenged him to read some of what the New Testament says about money and success. And the result of that is that Howard's life began to have this new story planted in him to the point that he started studying all of what Scripture said and was converted to the Christian faith and went on to found Crown Financial Ministries through which over 50 million people have studied the Scriptures in 88 countries. What if that coworker had been too nervous to speak up and tell the story? Or what about the high school freshman and youth group who had gone off to a secular summer camp but kept up his nightly discipline of scripture reading. And his cabin mates made fun of him because he would read the Bible before he went to bed every night. But one of them took him aside and started asking him questions about it while still sort of telling him he thought it was pretty weird. But the kid kept on going. He did it every night through the camp session. And then much to his surprise, after losing touch with this cabin mate, about 18 months later, he got a text from him saying, you made me curious about reading the gospel, and I did it, and I have now given my life to Christ. You never know what will happen when you decide to tell your story, when you choose to be good salt, when you choose to be life-giving light. As we close this service today, we're going to sing a hymn about O Church Arise, and it is such a great reminder that we are the ones who are the keepers of the great story. We are the keepers of the beauty, truth, and goodness of the kingdom of God. There is no plan B. If we keep the salt and the salt shaker and the light under a dark light protecting shade so no one can see it, then the world will perish, and it is up to us through the Spirit of God to live out our faith. Let's use these last words as a prayer. O oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain to be an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Lord, we pray you would use us as your salt and light that we might reach out in love to this world that you have made. In Jesus' name, amen.